Welcome to Foreman and Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And we're going to do something dangerous today, Cindy. Oh, I can't wait. What are we doing? You know what we're doing. We're I, going to, I do know what we're doing. We're going to deal with menus. Yeah. Menu wording, menu organization, menu pretensions. The fear of menu. All the dumb things we've done on menus. <laughs> the designing of a menu. Yeah. No, just recently, spent a bunch of time, maybe too much time. Maybe it's my... My advanced you can years never spend now. too much time. Well, designing a menu, it, you can overthink it for sure. Well, yeah. Okay. I, I've been trying to figure out exactly how to match up a communication style to get across what we want to say about a certain kind of cooking and what we're offering and get that across to a market and have it received in a way that they're excited but not overwhelmed and that it's accessible. Sure. But not facile. You know, mm-hmm. and w- when you think about it, that's it's a challenge. And I don't know that that's what every chef does when they sit down to write a menu. There, there's an awful lot of folks who sit down. And, what What are the first thing when you were like 25 year old chef? Do you write a menu with with what? I purpose? was just consumed with the food, you know. So yeah. I was I wasn't thinking about. I don't really think I ever even thought about how the guests would do reading my menu. I mean, well, it was in their language, so I knew I didn't have to deal with that. It's not like I was, if I was writing a French menu, I'm sure it would have occurred to me that um, might have a problem here. Was always, you know, typically American or American-influenced cooking. Yeah, I probably just thought about the food because I was trying so hard to do the best food I could do that that was my concentration. You want to make it sound cool. Uh, yeah. Okay. See, I can't. You want to make it sound cool. You want to make it sound like you, you have some secret magic knowledge beyond other people, right? <laughs> you know, you come, s- you come eat at my I, restaurant. I didn't say that. <laughs> come eat at my restaurant. I'm a magician. <laughs> I, you know, I'm a wizard. All right. That's why I have this peaked hat on mm. mm-hmm. with all the stars and the moons on it. Well. You know that's how people work. A lot of being in the kitchen comes down to ego. So, yes, of course, that translates into all directions. And one of the things is how you run your kitchen. And also that translates into your menu, of course. I mean, and it's a natural your thing. Your philosophy. I mean, you're, you know, there's there's discovery in your job. There's there's lots of hard work and success and failure. And, and uh, everyone's opinion means something. You have to do something to make yourself a little bit bulletproof. Of course, your ego has to mm-hmm. has to sustain you. Mm-hmm. I was just reading about 11 Madison Park. You know, they redid their interiors, which is amazing because they renovated after they got top 50 restaurant in the world from, I guess that's, is that Pellegrino? I forget. Yeah. But I, I was just, that. I mean, well, that's a bold move. You just got best restaurant in the whole world and you close your restaurant down and renovate it. And then I was reading um, his process and writing his first menu for reopening last fall. And he has... A very small menu. It's I think it was he has an hors d'oeuvre uh, that he did used to serve. I think that was part of his struggle was, and we all struggle with this as business people as well as chefs, um, because obviously we own our restaurants, our co-owners of our restaurants, and he is a co-owner of his. And that is a, as business people, you have a responsibility. You can't just think about 
the kitchen, which is what a chef can do or sometimes will do when they don't own the property. They're not as business-minded and um, or can not be as business-minded, not all chefs, certainly. And he was thinking about how many things he could use from his past menu. You know, what can I take from what I have already done? How much do I need to come up with that's brand new? And he put a couple of things on that he had done before that he was extremely happy with. And, and that is always our struggle because, I mean, I remember when we renovated one of our restaurants in 2000, and five, where I cook every day, and you know we renovated in three weeks. You you did that. I cannot believe you got that that place done in three weeks, completely gutted and redone. But that gave me almost no time at all to really test out my new menu because we were under yeah. renovation that entire time, and then we turned around and opened. I, I did that purely so that you'd be focused. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when we reopened, we had like, I don't know, I think we took a day or two maybe to just get set up and like go right into our new menu format, which was a tasting format where we were doing smaller portions, which was your idea. I mean, I'm, th- I'm super thankful that you had that idea. I would never have thought of that, but that's, you know, we went from doing a, a regular portion menu where we had, what we have like six first courses, sort of six middle courses, and maybe like eight, you know. And then um, and then we went to doing a menu that had like 24 menu items that you could just pick anything you wanted from it and just pay this many, you know, this much for these many courses. You could have anything you wanted. And um, that's a very unusual well, that was tasting a, that, menu format. That was a moment of thinking that tasting menus, having seen them, were very regulated. Mm-hmm. And you would like to see a menu that's reflective of all the best things that that the house can cook. Mm -hmm. And you would like to see a menu that allows you choice to drive it based on your personal taste and also the whim of that moment. And uh, you have an unusually warm day in the middle of winter. (laughs) You're you're going to want to eat. (laughs) Like very recently? Yeah. Yeah. You're going to want to eat differently. And boy, talk about that's a challenge, man. I mean, to go from snow one day to two days later, it's 80 degrees. That's a little hard to base your menu on, but you can do it. I mean, and that's a beauty of having a daily menu. Right. That's the beauty of having a daily menu. I mean, and also having the internet and knowing that it was going to be 80 degrees a couple of days later. You know, you can, that, I can't even imagine having a, a set menu for like months. Like it, I mean, it used to be that way almost everywhere when I first started cooking. I mean, there were restaurants where they probably never changed their menu. Like when the chef changed, the menu changed, but only. Isn't that crazy to think about now? I mean, that's a massive change in our industry. The fact that, I mean, I can look, I can think right now about the menu at a restaurant in Chicago that I used to go to when I was a kid. And I know, like, sometimes I would have, like, little little pieces of tape over things on the menu. And this was a fine dining restaurant, you know, like, for something that they just couldn't do that day or something. Um, but other than that, that menu was always the same, like, for years. And and then they had specials. And I remember how people used to come into our, our restaurants and say, so what are the specials today? And it was it was a big change to move from that, you know, because people were so used to it, to, well, everything's special because we do a daily menu. So, you know, this is what we're doing no, today. No one ever wants to hear that everything's special. Well, Even though everything might be special, no one ever no, wants I, to I hear that. I understand that. I understand. But it's that, a that's... funny thing with, with diners. Everyone wants the inside information. So for fun today, we talk about some of the terminology, how things are organized. Because I, I think that that's one of the more interesting things that goes on in our industry. And I think it's something that is more and less thought about by restaurants and definitely less thought about by consumers 
And I think consumers, if we can, if we can give you a little bit of insight into why they're saying what they're saying, then that might help. Why don't we take a minute and talk about types of menus? Okay. No, there's a lot of stuff, different things going on. People That's, hand you something. So what is an a la carte menu? What does that mean? So you're paying for each item individually. So you can, you know, have what you want. And I'm and, and some a la carte menus are divided into categories. So obviously, typically, you're thinking you're taking something from each category or, or you could. Mm-hmm. And it's a list of just things you can choose, and there's no restriction, and there's no, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, a prefix menu. Well, that's a set menu. So you're thinking with prefix, you're thinking, well, it's this much money, and I get all this wonderful food right here. Yeah. A lot of times, European restaurants have prefix menus that are something of a deal. Uh, yeah, which are nice, especially at lunch. Oh, my gosh. Prefix or an early prefix at dinner. Those dinner those uh, prefixes are usually pretty inexpensive. And, and sometimes they have choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you might have soup or something, and then yes, exactly, but not too many choices. Usually, like maybe three things or two things, and then tasting and, menus. Tasting menus that that can be very different from well, yeah, one place like, to the like next. Like we're talking about tasting menus. They, there's some like yours that has all kinds of broad choice that you can organize in whatever fashion you want to organize it. Mm-hmm. You know, with uh, with with the council of the staff or not. Um, and there are places that there's just, if you recall uh, back in the day going to Charlie Trotter, you have a choice of exactly two menus. Yeah, right? and one of them was vegetarian, which back at that time, that was very, very unusual. That was a long time ago. But yeah, and his menu had the one on the left, yeah, the one on the left had meat, the one on the right was all vegetables, and you had no choices. It was take it or leave it. And that was all that he offered. No yeah. choices, and no that- alterations, mm-mm, no. Mm-mm. Yeah, because no fooling around. Yeah, because my sister didn't couldn't didn't wasn't interested in one of the last courses, and it was definitely a little bit of a battle to get her something that she you know for for them to allow her to have something else. But that's what a tasting menu has been, and also then that some chefs have tasting menus where they, you know, maybe have three choices in the in different categories, and you can you know that's how they end at Little Washington. I don't know if it is now. I haven't been there in a long time, but I remember also back in the day that when you and I used to go there every now and then, they would have like what four or three choices in each of the three categories. Um, and then you had cheese afterwards if you wanted and dessert afterwards. So I'm pretty sure it was three courses only, if I remember correctly. So I don't know. As I said, I'm not sure if he's still doing it that way. But that's pretty typical. I mean, I feel like Danielle, Jean-Georges, places like that in New York are also um, sort of doing formats like that. Well, I think the French Laundry is the first place that I know about mm-hmm. and that was notable and, and obviously became super famous over time that did the incredibly long a menu of tiny, mm-hmm. you know, but 15, 16, 18 right. courses. So there are a lot of... Where, yeah. it's, where it's, you know, two, three bites of course tops. And um, I always remember that there there was a wine salesman who had a friendly relationship from years ago in Washington, D.C., who would come and see us in Baltimore sometimes. And um, this fellow Jim, and Jim went there for dinner and... He just ordered double portions. Oh gosh, of sixteen. Wow. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. Well, he was a, he was a robust man, <laughs> and he just was oh my did not want to not be satisfied. <laughs> I bet he was. So he was insuring <laughs> against that. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So the point is, is that there are a lot of different ways a tasting menu can be formatted. It's up to the chef. You you make your decision. How do you want to? How do you want to do it? And that's one of the coolest things that has happened. You know, I've been cooking since. 
professionally since 1984. And, you know, things have really, really changed with the way menus are written since then. It's it's pretty interesting. And, of course, been eating since the early 70s and good restaurants. So, you know, I kind of remember pretty far back how... And we have a pretty good collection of old menus that we, we've been able to look at, too. So, so Tony, with all the restaurants that you've been involved in, in the, since the beginning of your career, how were those menus put together, especially if you were maybe opening a new concept? You know, how did the price point come together, the thought process for the food concept, and the ending layout of the menu? How does that all work? Well, don't you think, I mean, don't you think it just begins with the... It begins with the first thing that you'd said. It's like you're you're the chef. You're focused on the food, mm-hmm. and sometimes you're working in partnership with someone who helps you communicate that mm-hmm. through other things. The menu being the most important one of those things, and and some, sometimes people just do it purely on their own, um, or use consultants or you know any number of there are a lot di- of different, different ways, different to, get ways to get it done. Right. Um, but it, I mean, it starts with food on the plate, right? I mean, it has to, to, to be really good. It has to begin with you cook something. It's delicious. It's beautiful. You've come up with your food concept. I want to eat this. People want to eat this. And usually a few dishes begin to inform the food concept. And that begins to inform the silo communication that begins to inform the structure of that menu. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. And then, then you begin to then, then all of a sudden boxes pop up on that menu structure that say, ah, we need to take care of this kind of diner. We yeah. need to take care of that kind of diner. That's one of the things I really appreciate about you when when we've written menus is that you always think about the boxes. What this needs to be, you know, these we need six things here. They need to represent this. That's always extremely helpful to me. It's food and people, right? I mean, it starts with you. You're thinking about what you want to cook, but you know, some poor schmo. Is got to walk it up and put it in front of somebody and make sure that they're happy about it, right? Yeah, yeah. And so if I imagine that there's a different type of person in that seat than the person who's coming for your original items that are in your brain, and, you know, then then you have to do something companionable that fulfills that spot. What is the fish that's the companion dish to, um, you know, lamb X? Mm-hmm. What is the vegetarian dish that's the companion to... You know this cheese soup. It's funny. I was just talking recently about Italian menus. The, the structure of the menus historically is dependent upon the type of restaurant that it is. So if it's uh, Slomeria, it's all cured meats. It's all cold. Uh, you know, there's there's no pastry. <laughs> if it's uh, uh, trattoria, it just means that there's hot food, which means we'll cook stuff for you. <laughs> That's and, cool. Uh, <laughs> Right. If it's an enoteca, it means it's wine-centric. If it's an osteria, it means that it's a little more formal. If it's a ristorante, it means it's grand. Okay. It means that it's, table, you know, that's that's the first time that you, like, know it's tablecloths and the waiters probably have jackets on and and that there's some kind of luxurious ingredients you can expect to be on that menu. But that's also nice for their guests that they sort of, that they define their restaurants by the wording that's very clear. It's funny. It's the original checking the boxes. Like, I want to go to X mm-hmm. type of restaurant. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, when we come back on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine, we'll spend more time on menus, menu development, um, menu translation by staff, and the future of menus. All of that and more 
And of course, in the third segment of Chef's Challenge on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine on WIPR. Welcome back to Formula Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. And Cindy, we were we were talking about how menus get built and what the thought process is of the restaurateur and the chef and how consumers react to those things. And, and people are a whole lot more sophisticated in how they understand what it is you're trying to communicate now than, say, 20 years ago, aren't they? Definitely. Definitely. What is something that you did on the menu 20 years ago that would be looked at or thought of as being a really dated way to say something. You know, what what has changed? What expectations have changed well, that I, you've had to deal with in building menus? The use of fresh herbs, the use of not only one kind of fresh extra virgin olive oil, the fact that it's actually fresh from that harvest. And, I, like, I have, I have four different types of extra virgin olive oil from two different countries, from four different regions in my kitchen right now. So it's things like that that have changed so much. And those things also uh, define a menu. Um, and and Spe- Specifics. Yeah, and the, yeah exactly. Menu, and the name of the specifics. farmer, you yeah. know, the name of the farm where it came from, were very specific well, and how, can be very specific. The, the first time I saw a lot of that on a menu was out of the, at the French Laundry in probably 97 was the first time going there and it was like really that's so-and-so's yeah and and it it definitely is something that that the keller had found or seen in restaurants in france uh especially joel robuchon mm-hmm. you know he always gave homage to the woman that grew his potatoes or you know the mm-hmm. things like that that's more on menus although i will admit i mean personally after a while it's like oh my god you know, how many sources are you going to? I would like to just know what you're cooking, and and I, and I'm right and, on that borderline. And that's borderline. also a continuing evolution because at first, like you just pointed out, 20 years ago in 1997 or 21 years ago, it was super cool to see all those things. And then that, you know, Chef Keller started it, and then other people started doing it, and then everybody does it, and that is the evolution of how things change. Then you get tired of seeing it, or you're like, okay, I don't need to know the source of everything. Well, I, Just tell me what my food is. <laughs> I, 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 there becomes a certain amount of confidence that, you know what? Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I know you're going to buy excellent product. Mm-hmm. And, That's why I'm and, here, because I have confidence in your kitchen. So yeah, let's just so there's get to a certain it. amount of... Give it to me now. I, I think that there are definitely people who are really interested to know a lot of the factoids. So I think there's there's a balance depending upon who yeah. you're trying to draw. There's definitely a balance of of you know exactly how involved you want to be in some of that detail that you offer. There are places that have that have made it sort of ridiculous. You know, it's one of those like this is fun. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the question from when this is fun goes to this is a lot. You know and it's almost the opposite of this is easy. I know what's going on. I can read this menu. I can get something that I like to eat. Uh, you know, it's like the line in Big Night where the guy <laughs> says, oh, I'm tired. It's the end of the day. Steak. I like steak. Mm. I'm happy. I got a steak. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I, I always remember that because there's a certain amount of, you know what? It's true. People are tired. It's the end of the day. 
you you give them make it give, easy them, for give them. them what they would like, make a good quality, and and they're going to be happy about sure, that. Sure, of course. When they explained what the fennel dish was about, and what the octopus dish was thinking about, mm-hmm. then then it became <laughs> like I. Now you're you're something. You're the octopus psychologist and a server at the same time. There you go. There's also that feeling of the menu in your hands. What does a paper feel like? Or what is it in? Is it in a leather jacket? Is it whatever, however it's handled? I have a huge menu right now. And it's it's almost too big for that piece of paper. I feel like the words are too little. And then people are like, I can't read this in your dining room. And, and it's like, oh, I don't know how to solve that because I really don't want to go to a two-page menu. I don't want it to be cumbersome. I don't want it to be in something. You know what? We're still talking about paper menus. Mm-hmm. You know that in the world there are menus that exist where they hand you, where they hand you an iPad, and there's. Please the, don't ever do that to me. Yeah, and you. I don't want an iPad. No, I'm not, I'm not doing anything. Okay, all right. I'm just saying that I know this exists. <laughs> I've not seen it, and I know this exists in the world. Wow. Menus where you you touch to see a photograph of a dish, and then you get the you know you see the titles. From the title, you can get a photograph. Uh, you can also get levels of description, and you can get all you know potential wow. allergens well, and all this sort of madness. And, okay. Like, the, do you like the, that idea? I don't. I mean, I don't. I know we're not trying no, to be negative. No, I, I mean, but it's like I, I cook because I love to feed people, right? Right. I don't love to feed people through the computer. I, I want to feel something. I, I, that's again, the paper's so important. Well, to that's me. the point of going to a restaurant anyway. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's to 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 commune with other folks, to be restored. You know, through food, you know, and 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 in community. I mean that. That's what it's about, right? Yeah. Exactly. And that requires paper, darn it. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think also one of the other things about conveying the menu, as we've already alluded to, is the fact that the waiters are the ones that are really, you know, dealing with the menu with the guests. And I will never forget the first time you said something to me to me about how the waiters represent you. As a chef, or you, I think you said it to the waiters. You know, I was you just represent trying to get you to chef. stop yelling at. Him. Well, that's it, and that's when that really registered with me that I should probably stop giving away the waiters a hard time <laughs> because oh god, they have to go back out into the dining room and represent me. Thank you, Tony. I was very good young. Good job by me. Yeah. I was. It was a good job by you, and every chef should hear somebody say that to them because the waiters do represent us, and they are our link to the front of the house. And and as a chef, you know, when I first started cooking, when we opened, I was online every night. I couldn't go out and to the dining room. So I couldn't, there was no way I could represent myself. And frankly, that's what I had you for. You were, you were out there yeah. and the waiters were out there. I didn't, didn't need to go out into the dining room. And, you know, now we have more than one place and, you know, things are different. Yes. And But now that you, you, I actually you, you, you expo, would send your fief, me. No, come on, man. That's not what I mean. You know that. And and so no, I'm, don't. I'm in the kitchen. You know, the point is, is that the waiters, as you pointed out so beautifully, you know, 19 years ago or whatever it was, represent me and every chef and so therefore that's another extension of the menu process we need them we, we need them not to just memorize that's the it dishes but they're not cooks to, under, to understand Almost the no dishes. waiter is a cook and that is one of my struggles as a chef is conveying and, and I work hard at it at menu meeting that's why we have a menu meeting every day uh, is to convey how things are made and to try and make it so they can understand how it's made so that they're not just listing off a bunch of ingredients when they talk about a dish, but that they actually understand how it's prepared. It's tough. Yeah. But that waiter coming to goodness, your table is someone who, it, it may not have been intuitive for them to explain everything that's on that menu to you, 
the first time that they started hearing about it. Right. That's 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 been work because that's yeah. You know, that's teaching the engineer to be a painter. Exactly. How cool is it when you, we've had some servers that uh, you know that that paid close attention to descriptions of your items and watched the items being prepared, mm-hmm. and they come in you know after a day off. Hey, I made such and such at home. That's amazing. I love that so much. And you know, we kitchen we need we need our front of the house people, and they have the personality, as I was saying before, to be with the guests and the ability to learn all this amazing amount of information. Uh, you know, I'm very thankful for that whole, the discipline that they have in pushing themselves to learn so much about something that they don't get to do firsthand. Um, well, and they don't, yeah. they don't see it necessarily before they have to know it, which is... Oh, that's uh, true. And they get a tremendous amount of information right before the guests walk in the door, because that's when we do menu meeting. Hey, by the way, have that memorized and have a smile. Yeah, that's not easy. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I definitely respect our front of the house, and, you know, that's not an easy thing. You know, in thinking about this, the menu terminology, and I'd ask you a question some minutes ago about what 20 years ago would you have been bothered by or embarrassed by? I was thinking about my grandmother and first moving to Baltimore, you and I went to dinner with her to Citronelle. Mm-hmm. And I will never forget her looking, and this is probably 1994, right? I, can't, I will never forget her, and she's... She was born 1917. I can't get in trouble with her for saying that because she's passed on. But she was looking at that menu, and she was picking out menu terminology that I think, you know, felt very advanced at that time, very in style, very, you know, like trying to communicate, this is a cool restaurant. We do, you know, very upscale things. And her making jokes about, you know, items in the menu and how they're worded. Mm-hmm. You know, what's a root vegetable? <laughs> is that is that a math vegetable? Oh boy, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean that just it's like oh my, am I going to be that guy who's poking fun at uh, <laughs> you know mm-hmm. menus in another twenty five years? Yeah, and there's also the other menu in the restaurant that we should probably talk about, which is the wine list. Yeah, we definitely should do that. Lord knows I talk too much about the wine list. Uh, we'll do that in the next segment, and uh, of course the chef's challenge. Good luck with that. <laughs> I hope you brought your big chef pants. All of that and more on Foreman Wolf on Food and Wine on WIPR. Welcome back to Foreman and Wolf on Food and Wine. I'm Tony Foreman. And Chef Cindy Wolf. So, Tony, we have to talk about menus, wine menus we have now. To, oh. Yeah, so what's the evolution of that and how, you know? The evolution of that? Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, there was still always the, you'd get this book that looked like a photo album, and one side would have the name of one wine that might have the, the vintage crossed out or no vintage at all. Or the price might be taped over and then rewritten in. Wow. And on the right side would be a photograph of the label. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Lots and those. lots and lots of menus like huh, that. That's interesting. Lots of, that's, you were probably much fancier restaurants, but that, <laughs> the restaurants I went to, there was a lot oh, of that boy. sort of business. Okay. There was plenty of that. I can guarantee you I didn't see a wine list when I was a kid. The, okay. The, the first place I Let's worked in. Let's start there. The first place I worked in. <laughs> The Governor's Club, 
had no wine list when I started. Oh wow, none. Huh. Full bar. Well, I mean, it was they served wine. It was just though. a bunch of old guys drinking Manhattans. I mean, pretty okay. much, you know. All right. Mm-hmm. They did serve wine. They had white and red. <laughs> you know, okay. And they they bought whatever for those two wines. Came in a big glass. And people uh, were perfectly happy with jug. them. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of clientele that were there. And you're talking about, you know, the, a lot of well-to-do post-World War II, you know, so that okay. generate my grandmother's generation, that kind of thing. And uh, so a lot of those folks... Were they predominantly drinking cocktails or... It was, yeah, it was it all... Was, they didn't, probably didn't have a lot of wine? It or? was a lot of cocktails. Or did they have wine with stuff in it? Like, were wine switz... Well, wine coolers, wine coolers and wine spritzers, spritzers were, yeah, were a were thing. were popular, yeah, yeah. So you didn't need a... You didn't want to ruin a good glass of wine with... Yeah, with some 7-Up and yeah. some oh, ice. Yeah, golly, no. <laughs> Seven yeah. up. Is that what's in a wine spritzer? Yeah. Oh boy! Oh no! Yeah. So that okay. one one of the first things that I ended up doing when I had any control of anything in that place, besides putting the red wines where they were not next to a radiator. Oh my gosh! Was to was to begin to buy a little bit better house wine. Okay. And then to begin to sell for private dining events, better wine to guests who are having the events. That's cool. So then we'd have a few bottles left over. Mm. One, they liked them, and two, there'd be some left over. And the ones that were left over, I could sell to other people. Okay. And then once I'd accumulated a little bit, you're building up a little. I had cellar. a little wine list. That's so I said, cool. "Hey, right. George, so what if we had this little wine list just to just to the stuff we've already bought?" So that was actually That's the good. first one. I, the I first like one that. I ever wrote. And uh, do you remember what any of the wines were? Is it? Well, Mouton Cadet was definitely oh, one of them. Oh, yeah, baby. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My dad had Mouton Cadet at yeah. home. Uh, I remember that. Luc- Lucignano, uh, the Chianti Colle Fiorentini, uh, that was on there. That's great. A That's couple, cool, a though. Cu- a couple of different things. All right, so that was your first wine I mean, list. Th- things that were And you didn't have photographs of $8, labels. $8. You had a little piece of paper. $9. You had a nice piece of notebook paper that you wrote all the wines on or... We had a, a server who had really good handwriting that used, you know, a proper fountain pen. Cool. That I love would, fountain would pens. write on nice paper for me. That's nice. Like good. ten copies of the, our wine list, you know. I would write I wrote on notebook paper what everything was supposed to be. And Miss Jenny, she wrote all those things out for me. Perfect. And yeah, that's that's first list. And yes, we did have two Rieslings on there. Really sweet. <laughs> really good. I'm sure. Both of them. Okay. So how do we go forward from there? It's funny. In the U.S., it's just open season, right? In France, the lists are almost all French. In Italy, the lists are all pretty much Italian. If you're in Germany, a lot of German wine, including reds, which Hmm. is a pretty interesting prospect. Sure. But you will see some other reds from other places in the world and once in a while some other whites. But in the U.S., it's open season, so... For me, I like to start with what are you cooking? Whatever you're cooking is going to inform what's going to be tasty with it. What people do a lot of times the wine list, the same thing we talked about with menus, oh, this is cool. This will be cool to have on there. Mm-hmm. If it's cool to have a bunch of giant red wines on a list, but the food that you're cooking is largely raw seafood and vegetable-driven, while it those might be great things to eat and to drink, that may be difficult to have at the same time. Sure. And the guests that definitely say that I don't care. I want to drink the stuff that I like to drink and I want to eat the stuff that I like to eat. And it's it's hard for me to not struggle with that because it's almost like 
It's music and dancing, you know. It, it could be great music. It could be great dancing. But if you're not doing the right dance to the music, <laughs> it's not too fun. Okay. It's not too fun to watch. <laughs> you know, country line dancing and um, ballet, doesn't matter how good of a country line dancer you are, you're going to look really silly. So that, to me, is one of the things that you have to kind of get over when you're, when you're writing a list. Organizing things and, and not confusing people of wine list, I think that's a big deal. It can be overwhelming, just like the, the menu you, can be overwhelming. A wine list can really be overwhelming. People have to know how to find sparkling wine. They have to know how to find red wines. They have to know how to find white wines. Uh, it is helpful to have a bin number so they don't have to say the name of something yeah, that might be That's got to be one of the hardest things for unfamiliar. people. Unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. Bin number meaning where it's stored. So it actually does it does help you as as the restaurant too. Prices that are clear. Uh, it's really good to have vintage information if that's at all possible. Keeping current is challenging in any, sure. at any time sure. for every restaurant. I mean, sure, it's no, e- even the most wine-centric restaurants. Right. We have um, hundreds to thousands of bottles of wine. I can't imagine. I mean, one of the questions we deal with all the time is how many things are the right amount to look at in a category? Let's say if it's California Cabernet Sauvignon, if you have 40 wines, do you make someone look at 40 wines on the page? Okay. And how do you organize them? How do you order them? How you do know? you order them? Me, I price order them because people will look in a bracket of where they're comfortable shopping. Sure. sure. Of course. And ask you questions about that. And then you don't have to have the conversation, gee, how much money do you have for wine tonight? Right. Uh, which is or, hard. You know, or, or, or some very, I mean, I'm being a smart guy about it, but that's some variation of that, which is never a comfortable. Right. If someone just says blanketly, what do you like? I mean, consumer, please be warned, what I like is really nice and it's probably not that cheap. If you ask me, what do you like that's under $50. That's Definitely that's a really good it. purchase. That's a, a really dry, crisp white wine that's under 40 bucks. I can definitely help you and, and show you what it is that's going to fulfill your needs. Because on a menu, it's a lot safer question, like what's good? Mm-hmm. You know, what's good? Well, everything's, all the main courses are from 19 to $23 or something. So, you know, you're not going to get in trouble with somebody on that. But if your wines run from $29 to $700. There's kind of a there's kind of a gap there. Mm-hmm. Wine list usually should be centered on not just what the cooking is but also in touch with the price point of the restaurant and the breadth of the list. In other words, how much actually is in the cellar, uh, how broad of a selection you have. That that really should tell you how important wine choice uh, and wine is to that restaurant itself. If it's a very high-end restaurant, but it has a limited number, let's say 50 bottles or less of wine in the cellar, that probably says that there are other beverages that are really important as well as wine to what's going on on the table. Mm-hmm. I think also it's always interesting to me that we have wine that's not on the list, and I know it's because you're aging it, right? Yeah. So, so, I mean, that has to be... I mean... To me, it's got to be overwhelming to put a wine list together because of the volume, because of the amount of wine you all deal with. And then knowing that you have things in the cellar that, you know, I know you're on top of it and always tasting and everything, but that has to be a very difficult aspect of keeping the wine list, you know, going is making that decision. Well, yeah, we need to bring these in and put them when on the should, list now. When should we list? Yeah. When know, do you put those? 2009 Grand Cru Red Burgundies. 
And yeah. how do you feel about a really, you know, do you care about size of the, the you know, these gigantic lists? I mean, do you think that matters? I mean, I've, I've, I've again, I've been in restaurants where, I mean, a table's brought over. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I don't see how they could do it any other way. I mean, okay. it's just that's the nature of it. If they have a huge seller, which is amazing, of course they're going to bring you these two gigantic books. I just, even though I know some things about wine, I mean, I obviously don't know anything like you do. I find that to be overwhelming. Well, the que- it also the question becomes if that's obviously in that situation, that's wine is part of the destination, is part of the reason of being there. Mm-hmm. The thing that's kind of crazy is when there's one giant list like that, and there are, say, six people at the table. For the forty-five minutes it's going to take you to look through that list and find a bottle of wine. What is everyone else supposed to do? Yeah, no, that's awkward. It is awkward. Oh, I yeah, I mean, I know. You know, I mean, that's I do know. And and, and I try to I try to go fast. I know you do. Out of consideration. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I've been with you many times where I'm like, "Oh god." Well, especially or if it's just the two of us. At least if there's six of people, you have other people to talk to. But if it's just two people and one person sitting there looking at this gigantic, I mean, again, I'm not being negative about a big wine list cuz obviously that's amazing that they have it, but it is it can be overwhelming. It can be time-consuming. But why wouldn't they put all the wine on the on their list? I sometimes think it, when when that's the case, and we we have a a few restaurants that have bigger lists, and one in, one in particular, we'll have guests who will come in advance, like a day in advance for an occasion, look at a list, have a conversation with someone, mm-hmm. and target a couple of things. Or people who will look up wines online. We try to publish you know, that that in advance so that you can have an idea of what's there, mm-hmm. uh, so they can inform themselves so that they don't have to spend all that time. Yeah, and that's not always going to be convenient. No. That's interesting. So do you, what about paper and format and all that? Do you think, I mean, it just it seems like it's such a different world from our our food menu. There are more electronic wine lists. I've, well, I mean, there have already been some in Baltimore. It's not something that I've done or have aspirations to, but I know that there are more and more of those uh, I've certainly been handed them in other cities as well. So, Tony, uh, w- what's your feeling on tasting notes, and how you know how do you how do you go about doing that? You can't obviously put them on for every wine. There would that'd no. be a really big wine list. But I think tasting notes are really nice to have because it tells you that that someone's being thoughtful about what's being offered, um, and helps you communicate a little bit without having to ask for someone. You know, you you can actually read the item, hear some information about it. I think that that's nice. And tasting notes are very helpful if you have wines on a list that maybe not everyone is going to be that familiar with. If you grow up or or, or kind of grow up as a wine drinker, being used to New World wines, meaning American, South American, uh, Australian, they're all varietally driven. They're identified by varietals, so Chardonnay or Pinot Gris or Sauvignon Blanc or Cabernet Sauvignon. The wines in the old world pretty much are all identified by place. So Chateauneuf-du-Pape, mm-hmm. Champagne, uh, Nuit Saint-Georges. And sometimes, like like in Nuit Saint-Georges, it's a very small place. And sometimes it'll be a, one specific vineyard in that very small place. So it might be uh, Nuit Saint-Georges, Clos de Poray, and then the name of the producer. And then the thing that that is a little bit frustrating if you've only learned varietal wines. So what is Nuit Saint-Georges? Is that... What kind of grape is that growing there? I can't pronounce it. And 
I don't want to ask what it is. I understand. You yeah. know, yeah, it's overwhelming. And and then the the terrible thing is, it's Pinot Noir, Louis Saint Georges, and you know that there's a difference. And and the Clos de Poré is a is a premier cru. Um, so it's a, one of the better bottlings of Louis Saint Georges that you can have. You got to know about the vintage in some parts of Europe to to have some idea of what the character is going to be. Uh, if that Clos de Poré is 2007, maybe you don't love it so much. It's it's not a strong vintage. 2009 is an extremely strong vintage. You may be pretty excited about that, and drinking pretty nicely right now, by the way. Um, but that Pinot Noir is going to be very different from Pinot Noir that you get from the West Coast in character, in build, in alcohol content, in acidity, and the nature of the tannins that are there. And you can be bothered or intimidated by that, or you can also be excited because you've got a broader range of things to learn about and play with. And that's the the fun thing about wine is not knowing everything. The fun thing about wine is continuing to learn and learn and learn and learn. And it's you know it's it's one of those ancient things that is ever evolving that you can consume. And it can be fun. Well, yeah, <laughs> and it can be really, really nice with your food. And, and that's be and a great compliment to what's going on on the table. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I will say forever that food needs wine and wine needs food. I mean, it, it just if you if you drink alcohol, it really is uh, oftentimes just something's missing if the one doesn't have the other. Yeah, it's no interesting. Question. It it can be a perfect marriage. No question. So let's see how you marry yourself, Sandy, to all the ingredients <laughs> in the chef's challenge. Okay. All right. So you can go I can hear potatoes. I can hear wedding bells. Uh-huh. Green onions, tarragon, baby kale, whole chicken. Oh, that's too funny. Whole chicken. The whole Soy. chicken is hilarious. Yeah, no, it's just because I gave you a whole chicken too. So well, that's we're, nice. we, Thank it's you. weird how we're on the same Soy sauce flour, razor clams, cauliflower, <laughs> cheese your choice, dale baguette, eggs, vinegar, wine. Does it say vinegar yeah. wine? What the heck is wine that? Wine vinegar. Oh, for goodness sake. Extra virgin vinegar olive oil. Made, vinegar actually made from wine. <laughs> Extra virgin like olive oil. Wine, Onion, garlic, shallot, coconut oil. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to cut the Yukon Gold potatoes into a pretty large dice and boil them in salted water and drain them. And I'm going to wash, really wash the baby kale really well, and I'm going to julienne the kale. And I'm going to steam open the razor clams and take them out of the shell, take the liquid from the pan. I'm going to saute uh, the onion, garlic, and shallots, add that to that liquid from the clams. And I'm going to boil the cauliflower, cut it into little tiny pieces. And I'm going to hit uh, the clams, the cauliflower, uh, with the onion, garlic, shallot, with a little bit of the soy sauce. And um, that's going to be it's the starter dish. And Oh, and I'll finish it with a little bit of the green onion. I forgot you gave me that. So a really yeah. uh, little bias cut green onion like on a, on a long bias so you really get the feeling of the onion. So the green onion will go in at the end. And um, that's that. All right, so Yukon Gold Potatoes. So I'm going to roast the chicken. Uh, the Yukon Gold Potatoes are going to go in the roasting chicken pan right near the very end so that they cook um, in the juices. And uh, the uh, uh, eggs. 
Mm, Tony. I love eggs. Yeah, I do too, but I don't know what to do with them. So, uh, all right. So the the roasted chicken, you know, nice and golden brown and juicy and gorgeous and well-seasoned in the cavity and out. And then those potatoes and all that great juice. And then right at the end, I'm going to chop, roughly chop some the tarragon you gave me and add that. And um, I'm going to add just a little bit of coconut oil to the juices in the pan just because it's going to flavor it. Uh, Probably a couple tablespoons. It just will give some flavor. It also help to brown those potatoes. And I'm going to deglaze with a little bit of the wine vinegar, which will give some acid to the juice in there. And I'll add a little bit of water and flour that you've given me. And um, I'll make a sauce. And that will just like scrape all the stuff off the bottom of the pan, whisk it well. Kind of like a gravy. Yeah, pretty much. And then I'm going to strain it. All I have left is day-old baguette and cheese. So obviously I'm going to make toast points out of the baguette. And my cheese choice is Keen's cheddar. That's it. All right, your turn. You could poach an egg to put on that. Yeah, I could, but I'm not going to. Here you go. <laughs> I love eggs. I do too. Neglected I just the don't eggs. know what to do with the egg with anything on that. That's why I left. I gave you two whole chickens. All right. Well, that's nice. Parsnips, carrot, celery, onion, chicken stock, golden beets, white wine, cream, maitake, button mushrooms, arugula, walnut oil, red wine vinegar, shallots, extra virgin olive oil, cauliflower, a pound of shrimp. You know I, I know. I just ended much. it with a pound of shrimp to just make you Lemon, happy. Lemon, lime, herb <laughs> spices, dairy, tomato paste. But I just don't like shrimp that much. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Um, I'm going to leave the shrimp in shrimp. the freezer. Oh, boy. <laughs> I like eggs a lot more than shrimp. The chickens, I'm going to roast the chickens. You know I'm going to roast the chickens. There's mirepoix that you're giving me here. I'm going to prep both the parsnips and the golden beets and some of the shallots for vegetables to roast in the roasting pan with the chickens to finish. The chickens, I'm going to get going. What fat have you given me? Some walnut oil. That's too low of a flash point. Um, so the chickens, I'm going to have to use this regular regular oil in the pan and work the legs a little bit hard to start with to try to get more fat out of those guys so I can brown the, the whole chickens in the chicken fat. And I'll throw a shallot in there early to try to develop some flavor in that pan. And maybe a little rosemary as well in the cavity to start some perfume. Th- those chickens will roll around in a heavy bottom roasting pan until they browned enough on all four sides. You can hit them with a little bit of vinegar, slow down that browning. Put them in the oven. Gosh, what are you looking at? Depending upon the size, probably looking at 20 minutes on the stove, mm-hmm. 25. Mm-hmm. Probably another 45 in the oven. Maybe a little less. Depends, on, depends on the size, yeah. yeah. The last 15, 20 minutes in the oven, roast those parsnips and the golden beets. Maybe a little bit longer than that, maybe 25. What I really want to do with the mushrooms, the maitakis, the buttons, and the shallots, and the cauliflower, I really wanted to make a frito misto. I really wanted to, to fry those guys. I don't know why. I just want fried something. Mm-hmm. I always want fried something. <laughs> and, I, and I love... I can't believe I give you cauliflower, too. That's funny. And I love mm-hmm. I love cauliflower fried. I love mushrooms Me fried. Me, too. Yeah. Um, Sounds good. And no, I'm not going to fry the shrimp. The shrimp are going. I was going to say you could fry those shrimp I while you're at want the that. fryer. Mm-hmm. I don't want that. But I'm, I'm going to use uh, the lemon and the lime and the tomato paste. And I want one of those eggs that I gave you that you didn't use to make uh, a mayonnaise. You know, one of the rich vinaigrettes. A little bit of arugula, that mayonnaise for dipping it into. And what can I fry? in? have you given me? You can have some. Corn oil or peanut oil or okay. whatever you even, want. Even if I have to pan fry, I'll pan fry. 
Yeah, the button mushrooms, maitake, both fry up really well. So does cauliflower. What's the batter? I need one of those eggs back again. You can have the egg. Egg, cream, nice and heavy. Okay. And uh, roll it in some breadcrumb. Fry them up, and you're done. And Sh- the challenge. chicken stock, I definitely didn't use. Could use it to make a sauce. Mm-hmm. But if the chicken's roasted correctly, you don't need a sauce. Okay. Well, I think that's all we have time for today on Formula Wolf on Food and Wine. If you want to download this program, if you missed any riveting moment, or if you'd like to listen to any one of our other podcasts, please go to the WYPR page, WYPR.org, and look for the Formula Wolf page, and you can download programs there. If you want to correspond with us, uh, the email address is foremanwolf at wypr.org. If you want to follow us on social media, you can follow me on Instagram as Chef Wolf. And I am the real Tony Foreman on Instagram. Thanks so much for listening. And happy Sunday. <laughs> <laughs>